0: Sometimes you got to blow up the whole thing. And I know that's tough for a lot of people to hear, but sometimes the organization that exists today is not the organization that needs to exist into the future. And if you try to do it a little bit at a time and you try to piecemeal it, you're going to experience a lot of down years because you're moving too slow. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of CRISP, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started, which is $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond. To learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer.
1: This is Jessica, head of coaching strategy at Chris. And today we're flipping the script for another special edition episode to get Michael's take on how to maintain a competitive advantage in a rapidly changing market, how to break out of complacency and embrace new challenges, and why the most innovative firms accept a high risk of failure.
0: What do you want? I want them to innovate. I want them to be better. I want all oh, fresh ideas. But usually, here's the problem. I usually hear this type of stuff. But then what that person really wants is they want to hit some home runs. That's what they're looking for, but they don't respect or appreciate the process required to hit home runs and grand slams because they don't see all the things that won't go your way.
1: That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Welcome back to another AMMA.
0: How's it going? I'm back. Mic check, mic check. Here we are. I'm ready for another AMMA. All right, Jessica, you ready? I'm ready. But before we get started, for those of you that are joining us for the very first time, there's a couple things you might notice. Number one, we don't run any ads on this podcast. Again, not typical, right? Because you listen to most podcasts and they're going to be sponsored by somebody. Told them, hey, mention my product, mention my company on the podcast and I'll pay you X amount of money. And we said, no, thanks, because we want to be able to say whatever the hell we want on the podcast. We want our guests to be able to say whatever they want on the podcast because we have principles. That being said, the podcast is free and it's only free because we've got great listeners, great subscribers who review and share the podcast with their friends. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, wherever you listen to the podcast. That's number one. Number two, there's a couple types of episodes that we run on this podcast, a few, okay? Number one is what you're listening to, our AMA. You guys submit the questions. You text us at 404-531-7691. Yes, that is a real number. And we answer your questions here on the podcast. Then we've got our Encore Editions, where we bring back some of our best episodes, and we feature those on the podcast too. And then finally, our traditional interview format podcast. Again, those are incredibly unique in terms of the types of guests that we have on. So whether it's incredible athletes, great trial lawyers, entrepreneurs, Best selling authors, etc. We pick apart their brains and present all their insights on this, you know, on this podcast. We've been doing it for a few years now. All right, let's do it, Jessica. Let's cut to the MMA.
1: All right. So the theme that I pieced together this week with these questions is around complacency. So let's just kick it off here. I feel myself becoming too comfortable with the way things are, but I know we need to evolve to stay competitive. How do I break out of this pattern of complacency and embrace new challenges?
0: That is a multi-billion dollar question because there have been great organizations, all-time greats, you think about a company like Sears, you think about Blockbuster, you think about BlackBerry, that they could not figure out this the answer to this question, unfortunately. Once greats, now shells of their former selves or completely out of business and not existent And the lesson here is, is that the only thing more difficult than gaining a competitive advantage is keeping one. It is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to maintain a competitive advantage for decades. And I don't think most people truly can appreciate or even understand what it is to remain competitive and operate at that level, not just for a season, but for decades, decades. I mean, we look at some of the all-time great organizations like the University of Alabama, the New England Patriots, and when they're winning you know, championships, it's amazing. But they don't win them every single year. And... And you see even, in, let's say the companies in the, you know, the S&P 500, you see huge shifts from the ones that are at the top to those that even get kicked out of there and are no longer there. And it's like once dominant, but now no longer dominant. So what do you do? What i found most interesting is why this happens. And it makes sense. It's a, it's a few reasons. Number one, when you're right, humans have a tendency to believe they'll always be right. You gain this false sense of confidence because you've had a lot of wins. And let's say you've had a great year or a series of great years. And you think that will continue indefinitely. That's not the way the world works. That's number one. When you gain that confidence, sometimes it also leads to hubris. And you believe that you cannot fail and you cannot make a a wrong decision. So the way in which you interpret information and the way in which you go about leading your organization, now you start experiencing blind spots because you're not as paranoid as you once were. Okay, that's number one. Number two, you also have to look at it from the standpoint of why do you work so hard? Like really, sometimes the idea behind working so hard is so that you can get to a place where you don't have to work so hard. And yet, once you get to that place, sometimes inherently the organization becomes less competitive, right? So everything that you're doing today is sometimes with the idea of I'm going to invest my time, my energy, my money to eventually get my organization to a place where I no longer have to work 70, 80 hours a week, right? But the challenge with that is that let's say you get to that place and you're no longer working 70 hours a week, maybe working 30 hours a week, 20 hours a week. Well, now there's certain compromises that happen, but it makes sense because you want to enjoy your life. Isn't this the whole reason you were working so hard? So the unfortunate truth is it never ends. And even if you do get to a place where you've got a ton of help, you've got a ton of support, you've got great leaders in your organization, you're the founder. And there's a reason why the organization has gotten to where it needs to be. And there's a great book by Andy Grove, who's the former uh, uh, CEO of Intel. And he talks about the fact that only the paranoid survive. And I believe the most successful people have two common traits. They're the most paranoid, constantly paranoid people. It's a curse. Looking over their shoulder, thinking that, you know, you look at early Bill Gates. Bill Gates was this way. You know, Bill Gates would always keep 12 months of payroll in the bank at all times during Microsoft's history, because even when they were incredibly successful, because although he was very optimistic about the future, you know, he never wanted to be in a situation where they couldn't meet the payroll. Then there's the other side of the, the other trait. The second one is pain tolerance. The most successful people have the highest degree of pain tolerance. They can deal with extreme amounts of adversity, things not going their way. Every day you're dealing with all sorts of challenges, many times ones that you've never experienced in the past. And if you're looking at it from the standpoint of how do I avoid getting complacent? Well, it's understanding why human beings become complacent. Again, you had that fire when you first started and it was it was easy to, I think, be motivated and ultimately even be intrinsically motivated because if you were coming from nothing, you had nothing to lose and you only had the upside and you wanted to make things better and your risk profile may have been a little bit different. Now, as you build your organization up and you get to a really good place and you kind of get to the destination that you were after, unless you have bigger goals and unless you have a bigger vision, well, it's easy to fall in these complacency traps because you you want to relax and, you know, take it easy. You got the silk sheets, you got the nice car, you got, you got a nice life and there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem that that creates is that it makes it a little harder to get out of bed in the morning. You're not the savage that you once were, you know, when you were walking into the office barefoot and willing to go, you know, hand-to-hand combat. So you have to actually purposely put yourself in uncomfortable situations. I think it actually becomes much more challenging to maintain a competitive advantage, like I was saying, than it is to gain one. It's like Floyd Mayweather is a great example of this. 50-0, and right? And people talk about Floyd, and I I don't know whether you're a boxing fan or not, just if people understand how incredible that is. And they say, oh, he may have picked XYZ fights. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. This person never lost a fight, okay? Do you understand how difficult that is? to maintain a certain level of training and focus and consistency when you have like all sorts of competitors with their knives out coming for you and as you become more successful you become an even bigger target and to be able to ward that off for decades i don't think people understand how incredible that is so that being said i think the answer to this question i guess a bit long-winded is you have to understand why you can fall into the complacency trap and then also become a student of history and realize that once great companies are you know, no longer in existence today because they allowed themselves to be victims of these things. And if you constantly keep it top of mind and you remain paranoid for your entire life, maybe that's not what people want to hear, but I just don't know of another way. Someone said, well, no, but someone told me I could take this course or I could set up this system or whatever. And then what? You're going to be competitive forever? Absolutely not. You must be paranoid forever. And if you're paranoid forever, then you have a chance At maintaining that competitive edge, but it's still not a guarantee. Yep. Because nothing is forever.
1: That's right. All right, taking that and moving on. So, I founded my firm about eight years ago. And over the first five years, our growth was pretty insane, going from just me and one paralegal to now four partners, five associates, and 20 support staff. While I'm proud of this growth, I've noticed that it started to plateau in the last couple of years. In fact, I'm concerned that 2024 will be our first down year. How did you change your systems or decisions to continue to grow your company from a small one to a bigger one?
0: I mean, everything changes. Everything changes. This is a quote that your business is perfectly designed to give you the results that you're getting. So what your business looks like when you're at a million in revenue, or let's say under a million in revenue versus what it looks like at 5 million versus what it looks like at 20 million versus what it looks like a 50 million or 100 million or 250 million is completely different. It's unrecognizable. Unrecognizable from the systems to the people to the capabilities. It is unrecognizable. Sometimes this shift is like from 1 million to 2 million unrecognizable or 2 million to 5 million unrecognizable. But the bottom line is it's that you have to constantly reinvent yourself, right? You can't run the exact same playbook year over year, over year, over year, if your goal is to be able to grow. And then even so, one of the biggest challenges of growth is that it's, you now experience new challenges that the organization oftentimes is not ready for, right? So sometimes growth outpaces the infrastructure of your business. And that outpaces the training, the processes, the systems, et cetera. So you must constantly keep pace with that. And it's kind of a never ending battle because you can grow faster than you can scale up systems. Basically, marketing and sales is always going to outpace operations and infrastructure because one's easier to dial up, right? You just spend more money, right? And the other one, you have to take time to bring in the right people and train them and develop them and put systems in place and test processes and implement auditing. And that is a much more difficult challenge to scale, which is why I actually have more respect for operational infrastructure than I do for any marketing, right? Right people pride themselves on being great marketers. And I think that's fine. I mean, I wrote a book on marketing, but I will say that I don't respect that as much as I do a very strong organizational infrastructure. And if I was starting a new business today, or if I were even going into a law firm and they're saying, Hey Mike, help make us better. It would be all operations, everything. I'm not going to look at it and say, Hey guys, what kind of campaigns are you running? Right? You're running some cool marketing campaigns. I heard you heard about Google LSAs or what kind of TikToks are you doing or this bullshit? Instead, I'd be like, look, we're going to look at how the phones are being answered. We're going to look at how people are being trained and developed. What's the client experience like, okay? We're going to look at how cases are being moved forward. We're going to look at every single element there. What is, you know, how are we managing cash? Let's make sure that we have the right process. Let's make sure we have the right systems because the only thing that will happen if we make the marketing better is it's going to break everything else. That's the only thing that's going to happen. So if you're concerned about your first down year, the way to potentially avoid that is to think, well, how do we reinvent ourselves and what are the areas that we need to improve significantly? This transform entirely. Sometimes that means you got to take the B players that you have and say, look, we got to top grade everyone, right? I know someone's going to think, oh man, but what if I train them? What if I develop them? Who knows if they're the right people? Who knows if you've hit their cap? It's like the Peter principle, right? Someone will get promoted and continue to get promoted until they get to a point where they no longer can do the job that is required of them. And they will now be ineffective. That is kind of what you see in corporate hierarchy generally. So sometimes you have to replace the B's with new people and new capable people, right? Invest in the A's, of course, right? You haven't hit their ceiling yet. But sometimes the ones that have been with you for 20 years and have done an okay job aren't the ones that take you into the future as, you know, as as difficult as that is to say. They might be, but probably not, okay? Then you look at just, you know, organizationally, like, you perform gap analysis, essentially saying, like, what are all the organizational threats? Where are all the areas where, you know, we have inefficiencies? When you've hit a point of scale, like what you do, you know, when you're a small organization versus a larger organization, at the small organization, you're coming up with all sorts of new stuff to do, Right. When you're in a larger organization, you are doing more iterative things in terms of being able to improve conversion rates, right? From what's our conversion rate on the phones, what is the conversion rates of even individual marketing campaigns, of even things like email open rates and click-through rates. And you're trying to improve percentages because at a level of scale, those percentages are huge, like millions and millions of dollars of difference. It's no different than when you look at professional sports, they're not like, hey, we're going to make a 30% improvement. They're like, I want to see a 1% improvement in this one area. And that becomes their competitive advantage. You see this in F1, in Formula 1, all the time. It's like, if you can improve your lap time by 0.1 seconds, wow. Wow. They're not thinking, how do we improve by a second? What are you, nuts? Everyone's good. Everyone's improving. And if you can improve a lap time by 0.1 seconds, because there's a lot of laps in a race, right? That can be the difference between winning and losing. And they work all year round, their entire engineering teams, the entire organization, to try to figure out, how are we going to do that? It's wild. But that's when you're playing in the big dog league. So, if you don't want a down year, you have to think, how do we reinvent the organization? What do we need to do? Sometimes you got to blow up the whole thing, right? And I know that's tough for a lot of people to hear, but sometimes the organization that exists today is not the organization that needs to exist into the future. And if you try to do it a little bit at a time and you try to piecemeal it, you're going to experience a lot of down years because you're moving too slow. That is the nature of business.
1: Yeah, it's painful, but part of it. <laughs> All right. Last one here. I am trying to encourage my team to challenge the way we do things and get them to think outside the box. However, our structured approach to case litigation seems effective as it is. I'm curious, how do you apply deliberate agitation to things that are already working? Interesting question. So
0: I imagine this person is someone who likes to mess with things just for the sake of messing with things. Right. (laughs) It's like everything's working. Let's just blow it up because they I don't know. Maybe they heard on a podcast or a blog somewhere that like this is what it means to be an innovator. Sometimes it does. Uh, it's an interesting question. It's like, I think there's two parts, right? So on the one hand, you're asking, what do I need to do to get my teen to start thinking outside the box? So I'm assuming there's a need for new ideas and fresh ideas, right? It's like in the movie Elf. Uh, there's a scene where the writers, like they're, they're trying to develop this new children's book because they're about to miss their quarterly earnings and they need a hit children's book. So their are two writers, like this is the writing team. They come and sit down with Walter Hobbs and they say, we got a." incredible idea you're gonna love it it's amazing it's incredible it's gonna save the company and he's like all right what's your idea and they're like we're gonna bring in miles finch and walter hobbs is like so you're telling me that my crack squad my top writers my fun squad they suggest that the thing we need to do to really uh create a great children's book and transform the company is bring in another writer and he's like i like it here's the thing about the you know these two parts You want to be able to get fresh ideas and get people thinking outside the box because you want to spur innovation, right? In order to do that, yes, you have to listen to people, right? You actually have to create the type of environment where someone can throw out an idea and it can be absolutely horrible, right? And if you really want true innovation, you have to have a high tolerance for failure, right? So meaning that a lot of things that are not going to work out. So meaning that this happened this week, right? We're meeting with the marketing team and people have all sorts of great ideas. And I'm like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this one, this one, this one, this one, this one but they all might fail and they all might not work and I go in saying I want you guys to try it out but if I need everything to be a hit and everything to be a success no one's going to innovate cuz they're only going to do safe things but it's recognizing that sometimes you don't know what what works until you try it right you split test you iterate you try different campaigns but then I already have this you know this process that's already working so okay well then why do you want to change it number 1 or do you believe that it could be better, right? So I think it's just, then you get into the question of like, what is the standard of that process? It might be working in terms of it's serviceable, but is it world-class and is it operating at the highest standard? It's like, you know, you have to look at what is really the standard there and are you dissatisfied with that standard? And if, and if you are, you have to provide an example of what great looks like, right? To, to model something after, right? So the example is, it's like, you can look at two different hotels. You got the Motel 6 and you got the Four Seasons, right? Both have varying levels of service and both perhaps answer their phones differently and both have different types of beds, right? And a different experience. But one has a certain standard and the other has a very different standard. And the Motel 6 is not trying to be the Four Seasons. The Four Seasons certainly is not trying to be the Motel 6. So you have to figure out who you are. And then do you want to improve things because it can improve the top line revenue of the business or profitability somehow or enable you to do something or are you just trying to do something to give everybody a headache? And is there a goal tied to this, right? Of like what why are you trying to improve things? Is the efficiency tied to be able to give people time back so they could focus more on strategic thinking as opposed to mundane repetitive tasks, right? I mean, that could be a great reason to be able to get more output and more leverage within the organization. But I think it's being very, very clear about like why are we trying to break this? Like what is the end goal? What are we what are we trying to create? Because sometimes you may want to break it because you believe there is a better way, but that leads to efficiency and that enables the organization to operate in a more effective way, which allows the organization to be more profitable. And if the organization is more profitable, you're able to reinvest more into the organization and grow faster. Okay, that makes sense. So I think it's just deciding like, why do you want someone to break something that's already working? Again, coming back to how do you encourage your team to do this? So I think it's it starts with you as the leader, having a certain failure tolerance and being willing to know that you're going to make certain investments and you'll need to run with ideas that just won't work and won't pan out but that's the only way you can find the gems and that's the only way you can really become a true innovator. It's like people only see the wins. They don't see all the things that didn't work out, but you're not going to bat a thousand. So it really starts with you and giving people the freedom. If you can tell someone, hey, I want you to try out these different things. I'm going to give you the budget to do it. And if none of it works, none of it works, that's okay. We're going to learn.
1: I would actually go back and even challenge if they say it's working. Is it working the same way for every single person in the organization? Or does it depend on who you're actually looking at? Because you're only as good as your last phone call. You're only as good as your last filing. You're only as good as the last one.
0: Yeah, I agree. So just figure out whatever the hell you want. That's my answer to the question. What do you want? You know, I want them to innovate. I want them to be better. I want all fresh ideas. When usually here's the problem. I usually hear this type of stuff, but then what that person really wants is they want to hit some home runs. That's what they're looking for, but they don't respect or appreciate the process required to hit home runs and grand slams because they don't see all the things that won't go your way. So if you don't have that failure tolerance, then you know, all that's going to happen is you're going to be shouting out platitudes and all sorts of things saying, we got to be more creative. We got to be more innovative. But you're assuming that someone's going to come to you with some magical idea that'll transform the organization and save the company. And unfortunately, I don't think there's any one thing that'll do that.
1: And on that note, we will see you next time. See ya. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney podcast with Michael Mogul. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that we can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of Michael's book, absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot Michael a text at 404-531-7691 and ask him any question you'd like. You might just hear the answer on the next episode. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it will help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.